Hello, and welcome to Notes in the Week Ahead, a JP Morgan Asset Management podcast that provides insights on the markets and the economy to help you stay informed in the week ahead. Hello, this is David Kelly. I'm Chief Strategist here at JP Morgan Asset Management. Today is June 26, 2023. I have a sad tale to relate. After dodging COVID for the last three years, my wife Sarah and I were at a wedding two weeks ago and the virus decided to crash the party. Two days later, I tested positive and Sari tested negative. I'll spare you the grim details since almost everyone has had a similar experience. However, despite only mild and fleeting symptoms, I experienced a rebound and so I'm sitting alone, testing daily and waiting for a negative so I can return to society. Investors in 2023 have also been waiting for a negative, waiting to see if economic growth would turn negative waiting for a well-established negative trend on inflation, and waiting for the Federal Reserve to perceive enough general negativity to stop raising interest rates. As the first half of the year draws to a close, the wait continues. However, in rather sharp contrast to my predicament, there's plenty that investors can do while they wait. Data due out this week should help confirm that the economy continued to grow in the second quarter. In particular, while Friday's May reading on real consumer spending should show no gain, Revised April data should still show a healthy increase, suggesting annualized growth of between 1% and 2% for the quarter. May durable goods orders due out on Thursday are also likely to be lackluster, but momentum from previous months points to a small increase in business fixed investment this quarter. Meanwhile, new home sales data due out on Tuesday should confirm other reports suggesting that, even with mortgage rates above 6.5%, a chronic lack of inventory is preventing a further decline in home building. Overall, these and other numbers suggest the U.S. economy has grown at a roughly 2% annualized pace in the second quarter, still avoiding the recession that many had called inevitable due to the Fed's aggressive monetary tightening. So how has the economy been able to fend off recession so far? Part of the answer is that there's no real excess in the cyclical sectors of the economy. A second more important reason, however, is an extraordinary excess demand for labor. As of the end of April, there were 10.1 million job openings in the United States. While that is down from a peak of 12.0 million in March of 2022, it is still far above its pre-pandemic peak of 7.2 million in January 2020. If going forward job openings continue to fall at the same pace as over the past 13 months, it would take another 20 months, or until the end of 2024, to fall back to that old peak. This has allowed hiring to stay much stronger than would have normally been the case given slowing economic growth. While initial unemployment claims have risen in recent weeks, continuing claims have remained at historically low levels as laid-off workers have quickly been able to find alternative employment. And even in the face of rising layoffs and sluggish real GDP growth, payroll jobs rose at an average pace of 283,000 per month over the last three months. This strong job growth, feeding through to rising personal income, has provided the economy with a degree of protection from recession and could continue to do so into 2024. All of this being said, however, the economy continues to face threats. Consumer spending is still excessive relative to disposable income, and this problem will worsen with the resumption of student loan repayments in the fall. Fiscal policy is tightening following the passage of the debt ceiling agreement, and the Fed's aggressive monetary tightening is acting as a drag on business spending. And then there's the issue of commercial real estate in the regional banks. Many office buildings, particularly in city centres, remain half-empty as businesses have adopted work-from-home uh, work or hybrid work schedules. 
Many regional malls have empty space due to a consumer switch to online purchases during the pandemic. This is resulting in a slow motion slump, with rising vacancy rates as leases expire and a demand for more equity and high interest rates in order to roll over maturing loans in these properties. This is a particularly serious issue for smaller banks, which have proportionately a much greater exposure to commercial real estate. As pressure on these lenders grows, they could continue to tighten credit standards as they have done over the past year. We could also see a repeat of the regional banking turmoil of the first quarter. However, it needs to be emphasized that this is a slow motion slump. Both the leases and the loans are stretched out over a number of years. Equity stakeholders in these properties will take the first hit, moderating the impact on bank balance sheets. Other areas of commercial real estate, such as multifamily housing, warehouses, and data centers are growing. And construction of offices, shops, malls, and restaurants all added together only accounted for six-tenths of 1% of GDP in 2019. In short, the commercial real estate regional banking problem doesn't look enough to tip the economy into recession on its own. Sluggish growth seems certain. Recession does not. While prospects for recession remain unclear, the downward trend in inflation is now well established. Since peak at 9.1% last June, year-over-year CPI inflation has now fallen for 11 consecutive months and stood at 4.0% as of May. We expect this to decline further to 3.2% year-over-year for June and then move sideways for the rest of the year. Moreover, it's important to recognize that in May, shelter, which accounts for 34.6% of the CPI, was up 8% year-over-year. Everything else rose just 1.9%. In addition, while the Federal Reserve seems particularly focused on the consumption deflation for core services ex shelter, even this measure appears to be slowing, with its CPI equivalent falling from 5.4% year-over-year in April to 4.7% year-over-year in May. In fact, even this 4.7% doesn't reflect a broad tide of inflationary pressures. In fact, over 70% of it reflects a surge in auto insurance and repair costs, which in turn are largely a a lagged response to last year's surge in new and used vehicle prices. Interestingly, both auto insurance and repair costs saw very large monthly increases from June through September of last year. This suggests that Chairman Powell's favorite inflation measure is going to take a nosedive on a year-over-year basis in the months ahead. Despite mounting evidence that inflation is headed back to its low pre-pandemic levels, the Fed has maintained a very hawkish tone, with 12 of 18 FOMC members projecting at least two more 25 basis point rate hikes before the end of the year. The Fed's position is somewhat strange, since their own forecasts must show roughly the same moderation in inflation that we expect. A gradual decline in inflation from just over 3% year-over-year in June 2023 to approximately 2% in December 2024 doesn't imply surging uncertainty and economic instability. This being the case, it hardly seems worthwhile to risk sparking a banking crisis or triggering a recession to achieve the inflation goals faster. However, having laid out this path, the Fed may well try to follow it to maintain their credibility. Consequently, we could well enter 2024 with peak short-term interest rates. Thereafter, however, the Fed's own forecast suggests easing with the dot plot showing a median decline in the federal funds rate of 1% in 2024 and 1.25% in 2025. As the Fed starts this process, the impact on the economy could be quite negative as many prospective borrowers would want to wait for even lower rates and worry that the Federal Reserve may see more economic weakness than is apparent to them. This could easily result in an accelerated easing process. 
For economists, the Fed's reluctance to believe in an inflation slide is frustrating, since it increases the risk that millions could lose their jobs in fighting a war on inflation that has mostly been won already. However, for investors, it presents an opportunity. First, if inflation continues to fall and the economy falters, it's likely that short-term interest rates will come down more quickly in 2024 than the Fed currently anticipates. This should allow long-term interest rates to also decline, providing gains in long-term bonds. U.S. stocks should also benefit in this scenario as investors begin to price in a recovery in corporate profits, but not in inflation. Finally, the dollar could resume the decline it started last fall, with foreign central banks staying hawkish for longer in response to a more intractable inflation problem in the U.K. and the euro area. So while the Fed waits for more definitive negative signals in the economy and inflation, investors could benefit from assuming that these signals are coming and position their portfolios accordingly. Well, that's it for this week. Please tune in again next week. And if you have any questions in the meantime, please reach out to your J.P. Morgan representative. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.